Our scripture today is taken from Jude, verses 14 through 16, which can be found on page 1027 in your Bible. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, unless you're heading to your car, and then uh, let me uh, just pray for traveling mercies real quick, okay? Uh, Lord, thank you so much for your scripture. Even when it seems dark and gloomy, you have something for us, and so I pray that your truth would shine forth this morning, that you would cause me to not be a distraction, that you would cause the things in our lives, the goings-on in our days, the things happening even this afternoon to fade to the side and that we would hear what you have us to hear. There's one thing for certain, Jude wants our attention and he wants our attention for the glory of God and I pray that we, by the power of the Spirit, would give it and that you would have it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, Jude uh, is the master of weaving weird webs, okay? And he continues by referencing this character named Enoch or Enoch. Um, So just so you know, uh, there's just a little bit of background here, more than a little bit, but if you go to, if you write down Genesis 5, 24, uh, Enoch is a character, uh, a person that existed in history, He is an ancestor of Noah. He is mentioned in a representative genealogy in Genesis 5, and it says this. It says something very strange about Enoch. So everybody around Enoch is living and dying, but Enoch is is the seventh from Adam. We'll talk about that in a second. But it says this about him. This is Genesis 5, 24. Enoch walked with God, which means he was very close with God, and he was not, for God took him. So there's this sense, there's kind of this uh, a no punctuation at the end of the sentence, meaning uh, Enoch, kind of like Elijah being taken to heaven in chariots of fire, he walked with God, he was close with God, and then God took him to heaven without him ever dying. So it's a very strange set of circumstances. Um, uh, it gets uh, even stranger than that. Uh, again, as you see here, it says uh, in verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam. So in this representative genealogy, which if you're wondering what that is, you can go to Matthew uh, 1 uh, or Luke 3 and look at the genealogies of Jesus. These are not complete, literal, full genealogies. They're the highlights. And so here we have Enoch being highlighted as the seventh from Adam, seven being an important number uh, in parts of scripture. And so what we have here is this character in Genesis with a giant spotlight on him. He never died. He's the seventh from Adam. He's before Noah, all these things. And so 
The way it gets weirder is that in the the time between Malachi and John the Baptist, so Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, the, the kind of the first and only prophet before Jesus Christ, there was 400 years of silence from God to his people. 400 years of silence. God did not speak to his people. And there was a lot of history happening there. And there were people who were still faithful to God and they were hungry for a word from God. And so as they were looking for inspiration and ways to call the, the people of God back to God, Enoch became the perfect person to kind of fill out this, this desire. And so there's this book. It's non-canonical, meaning it's not part of scripture, either Jewish or Christian. But today it's called First Enoch. This quote comes from First Enoch. Told you it got weirder, okay? There's a book, a, a, an ancient uh, document that Jude is quoting here. It's not part of our scripture. It's not part of the Bible. It's not part of the Jewish Bible. And yet he's quoting it. Why would Jude quote such a bizarre thing? Why would he do that? Well, <clears throat> let's be honest. The specific reason will probably escape us, Okay. We don't know exactly why, but we can come to a reasonable explanation. Uh, Think about Paul, the Apostle Paul. When he's witnessing to the Greeks in Athens, who does he quote? He quotes Greek poetry. He uses what they know. Jesus, even, as he is talking with fishermen, he talks about uh, weather parables, okay? And so uh, what what Jude is likely doing is contextualizing. So there's something about this document, Enoch, that was relevant to this church. I think there's enough evidence or at least enough uh, good explanation that it would point to the fact that possibly these false teachers were using the book of Enoch as part of their false teaching. So Jude is contextualizing using this quotation that we see in verse 14 and 15. What's the value? So mysteries aside, we don't know necessarily exactly why, but mysteries aside, what good is this non-scriptural opinion of a pseudo-Enoch? All right, you never thought you'd hear that sentence in church. What purpose does it serve? So listen, if you look at the scripture itself, which we're going to do, nothing in it, if you compare it to scripture, is inaccurate. So nothing in it is is extra-biblical or unbiblical. And so in this way, what we can do this morning, although this is coming from a book that's not part of scripture, in a sense, Jude is taking this one quotation and because of the veracity or the truth that lies behind it, he's making it scripture. He's using it as a prophecy. He's using it as a prophecy. So because Jude is using this odd quotation from an odd source as a prophecy, we change the question to what good is a prophecy? What good is a prophecy? Prophecies in the Old Testament, where we think of them uh, being most of the time, uh, they're used oftentimes a striking image to call attention to God. A striking image to call attention to God. I could give many examples. One of my favorites is Jeremiah. He, he had this wooden yoke over his shoulders and he said, we're gonna be, if we don't change our ways, we're falling under the yoke of Babylon. And then this other false prophet smashed the yoke. And so Jeremiah went and made a metal yoke. I mean, these, these images that are wonderful, uh, memorable things, but what are they designed to do? Call attention to God and our relationship with God. Call attention to repentance. 
a prophecy like this is a message for the faithful and the unfaithful alike. It's intended to turn our heads and our hearts in the right direction. That's what a prophecy is intended to do. So the next question, so many good questions. You guys are great at asking questions. How is this prophecy trying to do that? How is this prophecy in Jude 14 through 16 trying to turn our heads and our hearts towards God? Let's take a look. So we have verse 14. We have the introduction of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and he prophesied, again, from this other book. He says this in that book. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of holy ones. Here, again, we are talking about angels. In this context, Jude is reminding something he's already talked about, something that is a part of core Christian belief that Jesus would return. Jesus would return. From the very beginning of the, of the building of the church, there was this understanding because Jesus told them he would return, that Jesus would return. And we know from scripture that when he does return, he intends to bring armies of angels with him to accomplish his purposes. And so here he's saying, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. What's he coming back to do? The beginning of verse 15, to execute judgment on all. This is something Jude has already covered at nauseum, if you will, all right? Jesus is king. Jesus is judge. Jesus is savior. Jesus is master and Lord. We've already covered the fact that, to be, oh my goodness, somebody brought glass this time. That's amazing. Everybody okay? All right. We've already covered Jesus is master and Lord. Jesus is master and Lord. The beginning of history is about Jesus. The middle right now, the present is about Jesus. The end and into eternity, what's it about? Hint, Jesus, okay? Jesus. And so Enoch and Jude are reminding us that the Lord has planned out a day of judgment. And now, this next part's kind of subtle. They have a specific group in mind. We're gonna read this verse, see if you can catch who this is for. It's a little tongue-in-cheek. Okay, so let's see. To execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness, and they have committed such an ungodly way, and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, if you've paid careful attention, all right, I think he might be talking about the ungodly. I'm just going to take that as a hint. Um, listen, what is ungodliness? This is a word that we throw on all, throw on all kinds of different contexts, all kinds of different ways. What is ungodliness? The word here means to be impious, impious, which means to have contempt for an established order. So in this context, what is ungodliness? What is the established order, according to Jude, that Jesus Christ is master and Lord, that he is the source of truth, and anyone or anything that rejects that thing is in this category of ungodliness? So the rejection of Jesus as truth, the rejection of Jesus as judge, the rejection of Jesus as savior, these are all crimes that would be found under the category ungodly. He finishes by drawing a line of similarity. He's closing out the illustration. He's telling the church that he's writing to exactly what he's talking about in verse 16. These are the grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. 
He's closing the loop and he's saying, listen, what Enoch's talking about, what I'm talking about are these false teachers, the people who believe or teach wrong things about Jesus. So that's what Jude is getting at for this church. He wants them to see that, that Jesus is coming back. They want, he was, he's reminding them what he's already taught them, who Jesus is and what that means. And he's saying, listen, when Jesus comes back to judge, it's going to be against all ungodliness. All ungodliness will be destroyed. That's what he thinks. That's what he's trying to use to turn the heads of this church, turn the hearts of this church. And so the question then is, well, how is this applying to us? How is this literary prophecy, which is true in its nature, true in its principle, how, what good is this for us? And as we said before, prophecies are good for the faithful and the unfaithful alike. And so let's start with the second. If this morning... You're either listening to us online or you're here in person and you would fall under this category of ungodly. Remember what we're, we say that means? Rejecting the truth of Jesus Christ, rejecting the judgment of Jesus Christ, rejecting the salvation of Jesus Christ. This prophecy is meant this morning. Jude is trying this morning to turn your head and your heart to at least cause you to pause. Cause you to pause. This truth, somebody whispered to me, it was John Tyler, um, as I was leaving my seat after reading the scripture, he said, boy, that was encouraging. Yeah, that's, that's a good feeling to feel after reading something like this. It's serious. It's serious. And so alarm bells might be going off. And what are we, what is our tendency? to distract ourselves, to ask some of those questions we talked about last week. Well, can God create a rock big enough? Listen, let's just pause all that. Let's pause all that. Listen to the truth of Jude. This is what Jude is trying to say from the beginning to the end. He's saying, no matter what you believe, no matter what you teach, Jesus Christ is king of everything. King of everything. Jesus is judge. He sets the rules, and we have rebelled. We have rebelled. The choices we make, our hearts in and of themselves, the lives that we live, anything that's against God's will is judged to be ungodly, and it will be destroyed. Maybe, maybe that offends you. Okay, let's just go with that for a second. Maybe that offends you. And here's what I want to say. And, and listen to the second thing I say after I say the first thing. I'm glad it offends you because it's going to work in our advantage. Okay, so I'm not trying to be offensive. What I'm saying is if that idea that God has set rules and that you have violated them and that makes you ungodly offends you, let's hold on to that for just a second. It gives us an opportunity to actually be empathetic with God because what scripture says is that he's offended. He's offended. He set the rules and we have thumbed our nose at them and, and he is offended by that. And so for a moment, let's talk about the difference between us and God. What do we want to do when we feel offense? We want to turn away. No, thank you. Mm -mm. Nope. I don't want to hear any more about it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to be a part of this conversation. 
That's how most of us react when we're offended. Let's talk about what God does when he's offended. God, offended by my actions, offended by your actions, instead of turning away and saying, "Uh uh-uh, he drew closer to us. Do you hear the difference? When God is offended and in his anger towards sin and our rebellion, instead of turning away, he provided a remedy. He provided an escape in Jesus Christ. My hope is that the difference between us and God might cause you to hang on a little longer and when you hear the fact that we are the sickness, you'd understand too that he is the cure. We're the problem, he's the solution. That's the good news of the gospel. In fact, the word gospel means good news. It means good news. And so, what is the gospel? What is the good news? The fact that although we were rebels and we had offended God, God stooped very, very low and he became us. He became a human. Jesus Christ in the flesh. He became human flesh to redeem it. Not as some thought experiment. We'll see how it goes. No, he came to save us. Not only that, he lived the only life really, truly worth living. He walked with God. We'll use that language. He walked perfectly with God. The only worthy human ever to tread on earthly soil. And then that life was snuffed out. We talked earlier about how all ungodliness is destroyed. Guess where the ungodliness of God's people was destroyed? On the cross of Jesus Christ. Destroyed. Think about it this way. Jesus Christ on the cross met his own wrath. Gloriously, victoriously, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. That life was picked up, and in the resurrection, there's new life for God's people. And then, of course, God took him, right? Back to heaven. Listen, as a church, our hope, and I can speak for all of us here, if you are in this category of ungodly, right, I can speak for the whole church and say that we talk about weird stuff like this from Jude because we want you to pause and we want you to ask questions. It's important to ask those questions. They're the most important questions you could ask. And so if you have questions, we don't want to just send you on your merry way. We're going to have an elder and his wife up here afterwards. Come talk to them. Talk to me or Steve. Email us. You can find our, web, our email address on the website. Talk to your friend that invited you after you're done elbowing them for the weird scripture the pastor just talked about. Talk to someone with your questions. That's the point of something like this. This, this terrible, terrible news should cause us to pause and at least think about the truth. But church, Jude wrote this letter, not to outsiders, but to insiders. He wrote this letter to the church. So this prophecy is not just for the ungodly. This prophecy is for us too. What good is this prophecy for us? Just like in the old days with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the prophets used the language given, them, given to them by God, extreme language and examples to cause God's people to pay attention to cause God's people to pay attention. 
as he was talking in those old prophecies to sinners and the faithful alike, there was something for everyone. Think of it this way. The prophecy in the old days and this one too was to warn the wayward but also caution the kids, all right? So what should our response be to something like this? Something where we are reminded that Jesus is king, that Jesus is judge, that Jesus is savior, and all ungodliness will be destroyed. Here should be our response, church. We should participate personally in regular, honest, sometimes, oftentimes intense self-examination under the spotlight of scripture. Regular, honest, sometimes intense self-examination under the spotlight of the truth of Scripture. We need to submit ourselves to the conviction and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We need that. We need that. We need to pause. We need to pause and let the Holy Spirit and Scripture speak into our lives because we are not 100% godly. I don't know about you, but that's my case. I think it's interesting that the Jude, he's very thorough. And the, the last three words in the English Bible here in verse 16, to gain advantage, he's reminding us what these false teachers have been about all along, to make their life easier, to live how they want to live. That's what it's about. I have visions, I'm gonna do what I wanna do, I'm gonna reject authority, why, how, what purpose? To gain advantage, to make things easier. And I tell you, as we submit ourselves to Jesus who is right and good and powerful and loving and kind, as we submit ourselves for self-examination, we don't come out unscathed. If you're on the other side going, well that wasn't so bad, listen, you're doing it wrong, okay? Or you're insane, I don't know which, okay? I don't know which. We'll always, this is hard truth, Christian, you and me, when we do this thing, when we submit ourselves for self-examination, we will always be found wanting, always. The point of self-examination is not to get an A+. The point of self-examination is to know our need, and that's when Jesus swoops in. Jesus swoops should have been the name of this sermon. We'll, we'll, cut, we'll check that in, in post. Is that what they call it? We're going to change that in post. Jesus swoops. Jesus swoops. And once again, church, God does not leave us without resources. One of the best ways to do this in a healthy manner is to not just sit and think about how terrible we are, but to actually go to Scripture and through Scripture participate in guided prayer. The Psalms, the Psalms are not just songs, they're also prayers, very self-aware prayers. And so this morning, they'll all be on the floor by the end. Um, this morning, what I want to do, I want to take just two minutes and we're going to look at Psalm 14, just a few verses from it, and we're going to practice together self-examination, guided prayer, and see what we're supposed to do. Psalm 14, I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 3, and then I'll follow up with verse 7. Psalm 14 says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. 
the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. All right, pause right there. Here's the moment of self-examination. What do we do with this terrible news? First, we pause and we pray. And what do we pray for? We pray for the Holy Spirit to show us, to show me my part in that. Holy Spirit, where do I live as if there is no God? We all have parts and portions of our lives where that's the case. You know what? I'm just going to do what I want. We let the spotlight of the truth of Scripture expose our sin. It's not comfortable. There's no gain in it. But in that moment, what do we do? We pause, we pray, and then we repent of the foolishness and the ungodliness of our hearts. Because it's in there. What terrible news. Well, we fast forward to verse 7. Because self-examination is not just about our sin, it's also about who God is and the truth. And what is the truth? Verse seven, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This psalm finishes with true hope. You see, We either look to creation for hope or we look to the creator for hope. Where is hope when we know our sin is so dark? Only in the cross, the death, the resurrection, the salvation of Jesus Christ, the judge. It's the only place we can find it. And so as we finish this time of of guided prayer and self-examination, we finish on a high note of true hope, the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. Do you feel the swoop? That's a hashtag, by the way. Do you feel the swoop? God does not leave us without resources. Other than the Psalms, I really personally appreciate, oh yeah, I left them here. I appreciate personally the Valley of Vision. These are prayers from Puritans, and they really get to the heart of the matter. Sometimes it's going to be hard to find in print. Uh, Banneroftruth.com has it for free. And this is a new one within the last couple of years, but Piercing Heaven, uh, Prayers of the Puritans. I'm going to leave both of those up here with the rest of the resources that we've been uh, providing to you, and you can take a look, and if you want to purchase that, again, you can do that. But listen, God has not left us without resources. In church, Christian, ransom, We need to make a habit of examining ourselves in the light of the truth of Scripture. Because when we look at the light of the truth of Scripture, we are certainly going to see that we fail. There's no escape from that. There's no escape from our failure. We're going to see the hurt that we cause. We're actually going to see better the wounds that we have. We're going to see our malnourished, shriveled up hearts, and we're going to be reminded all at once that there's only one place to go when we notice that, when we see it for what it is, because Scripture also gives us the light of Scripture is not just the light of God's law, it's the light of God's grace. And as we read and self-examine, we are reminded that God loved us and he saved us. Jesus on earth, what did he do? He approached the leper. He ate with sinners. 
And even now, still, where is his heart? He approaches those who fail, those who are miserable, and those who are in need. That's the heart of Jesus Christ for his people. And so as we, it certainly is not comfortable, but as we self-examine in the light of Scripture, we let things like this prophecy that Jude is quoting, when we let them shine on us, we don't just see our need, we also grow in love for Jesus Christ because we see the eternal love he has for us in our need. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is giving instructions for the Lord's Supper. And he makes this statement in verse 28. He says, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so we come to the Lord's Supper and here we have our very first opportunity after reading from Jude to examine ourselves. And so what does that mean? What does that look like this morning? It means we hold in concert, we hold together our sinfulness and God's grace. Not one or the other, both together. Both together. And we let scripture evaluate us. Do we sin? You betcha. Does Jesus love us? You betcha even more. And so the Lord's Supper becomes a moment to accept and admit our failure and to accept and admit that God loves us anyway. And he proved it through the cross and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we come this morning, what I love about the Lord's Supper is it's, it's a perfect mixture of sorrow and rejoicing. It's why we don't dance down the aisle. It's why we don't rip our clothes when we come up. It's not a mourning only or a rejoicing only. It's a mixture of both. It's a somber reminder of why Christ died, but what he died for, to save us from our sin. And so this morning, if you're going to come after this examination, we're going to give ourselves, come holding those two things. Your sin, yes. When you walk down this aisle, you're admitting, I'm a sinner. I have a need that I can't meet. And when you walk down this aisle, you're also admitting, that Jesus loves me anyway. And he's forgiven and overcome that debt. And so if that's what you believe this morning, in your sin and God's grace, you've made that public profession, you've been baptized, the invitation is open and it's wide open to come and eat. Paul, in that same, the verses that go before and after that verse I read already, that same passage of scripture, he says this, whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. He then says, let a person examine himself. Then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does that all mean? It means if you're in that category this morning of ungodly, you reject the truth of Jesus Christ. You reject the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Whether that is, I don't believe in him at all, I don't believe I need him for salvation, or I do not believe I need to examine myself. I do not believe I need to confess my sin, or I don't want to. Those are the categories that Paul is talking about, warning you away from the table. And so we repeat that as a church to you this morning. Let's take a few moments and let's pray that prayer of examination, keeping our sin and God's love in view.
together. Father in heaven, Jesus, his son, and God, the Holy Spirit, we pray to you now. We we pray a prayer of blessing. The blessing is your presence here among us. God, you designed us to be with you, Jesus. You came and you were with us. You promised to be with us by the power of the Spirit until the end of the age. And so this morning... We are with you by the power of the Spirit. Praise your name for that better thing. I pray that we have done an examination this morning. It's always broken. It's never complete. But I pray, Lord, that this examination would not stop, that we would continually, regularly, Submit ourselves to the truth of Scripture. Spotlight our wounds. Spotlight our wrongs. Spotlight our sins. And may we have the courage, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to admit them and to see our need and to believe that you are there. Your offense was turned away at the cross and you have nothing but acceptance and love for us because of Jesus Christ. May we eat this bread and drink this cup this morning in that reality, that we are accepted by the name, by the work, by the relationship, by faith, by the truth, by the throne of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the judge and savior, our master and Lord. Amen.